Shalom for Lava. This is Pacific Waves from RNZ Pacific. I'm Susanna Suswiki. Coming up. The biggest concern is, you know, food supply over the coming months. A long drought has been declared in parts of Tonga also. The US wants to be at a better table that doesn't have China on it. What can we expect in the upcoming Pacific Islands Forum Leaders meeting? And later on, church leaders in PNG say they would rather save souls than provide public services. A drought has been declared for Tonga's main island at Tongatapu, as well as the nearby island of Ewa. Other islands within Tonga have been issued a drought warning or alert. With El Nino now in force, the dry weather is expected to last for at least another three months. Caleb Fotheringham has more. Tonga is set for a long drought. The climate pattern El Nino was officially declared in September by Tonga's Met Service, meaning warmer temperatures, less rainfall and more cyclones. Met Service Deputy Director Laitea Fafita says the drought is not expected to ease anytime soon. Looking towards the next three months for the Tonga group, it's still expected that this trend will continue to have below average precipitation or rainfall for our island divisions here in Tonga. During El Nino in 2015 and 2016, below average rainfall was also recorded. Mr Fafita says despite the drought, there will still be some periods of rain from time to time. When we say drought, the general perspective is that it will be completely dry. There will never be a single drop of rain. But in this field, there will be rain over time, but the amount of rain that will fall will still be below average. RNZ's Tonga correspondent Kalafi Moala says the current drought is the worst he's seen. Over the last 10 years that I've been living mostly in Tonga, we have not come across a drought situation like this. So there's been all kinds of cautions, big water and uh, have uh, wiser use of water. So this, this is quite unique. Mr Mawala says the government is planning to convert seawater into drinking water for the outer islands. Prime Minister Huakavameliku said on Friday that the drought season is a pressing issue, especially for the outer islands. The government's main concern is to provide sufficient water resources for the outer islands. Vanilla manufacturing and marketing business Heilala Vanilla, based in Tauranga, New Zealand, supplies beans from Tonga. CEO Jennifer Bogus has heard from farmers on the ground who say that it's been dry for about two months. Right now is pollination time, so the plants are flowering and then they're hand-pollinated, but in the situation where you've got a drought, basically the beans don't grow and then they you know, fall off the plant, and if the plants are under stress at all, the beans don't mature, so you don't get a crop. Ms Bogus says it's concerning with other produce also likely to be heavily impacted. It's not just going to be vanilla, it'll be all crops and probably the biggest concern is, you know, food supply over the coming months with farmers that are relying on growing their own crops and also selling on the local market for food supply. So that's probably the biggest concern from a you know, a community perspective. Mr Fafita from the Met Service says how much the drought will impact the country is dependent on the preparedness of the communities at a grassroots level. He says the National Disaster Risk Management Office is developing cluster response plans. 
The project lead for the Pacific Hub at the Griffith Asia Institute says anything is possible at this year's Pacific Islands Forum Leaders Meeting in Rarotonga and Aitutaki. It kicks off next week on Monday the 6th local time. Dr Newton Kane will be in Rarotonga for the meeting. She spoke with Lydia Lewis. So last year the forum asked the dialogue partners to stand back and stand down and to a large extent they did. They didn't fly in, they didn't try and grab any of the attention. But this year, you know, I've kind of dubbed this PIF as the return of the dialogue partners. We know that the US is sending a delegation of at least 10. We know that there are very high level delegations coming from the UK and elsewhere. And they are going to want, they're going to suck up a lot of oxygen and energy. They're going to want bilateral meetings, um, which, you know, can distract leaders from being in the more uh, focused multilateral meetings that they, they're meant to be in. Um, they're going to be, you know, they're going to cause a lot of work for the Secretariat. We've seen previously that there have been uh, conflict points between dialogue partners, particularly between Taiwan and China, and you know, I think uh, in recently in Nauru, um, well, a number of years ago in Nauru, we had this walkout by the Chinese delegation because they weren't given a speaking slot or the speaking slot that they wanted. So you know, there's it can lead to it can create an, a, a fair degree of tension. The last time that um, the forum met in Cook Islands was 2012. And Hillary Clinton attended that meeting as Secretary of State, and she was something of a showstopper, as you can imagine, and did kind of sort of suck all the energy, all the media attention, and all the talk was about what what she was doing there and what she was saying. In terms of the leaders themselves, they get the benefit, and it be, it makes their retreat even more important because when they go into retreat at Aitutaki, that is just them. It's just the leaders of the member countries. The dialogue partners don't get an entry into that room and or into that conversation, and that's where, I guess, the real work gets done. Has there been any indication that access to leaders will be limited this is only the second one where we've had an in-person meeting since COVID. Last year, the dialogue partners were not inv- were asked to stay away. Um, so it's a number of years since we've had the dialogue partners on the ground, as it were. But as we know, the oceanscape has changed quite significantly. Everybody wants access to Pacific leaders. Everybody wants to be, you know, stamping their mark on this geostrategic theatre that people insist on describing the Pacific as. You know, we've seen that there's a Latvian ambassador who's on a tour through the region at the moment. The president of Hungary was in Papua New Guinea earlier this week. You know, we've got people coming from anywhere and everywhere, and they obviously all feel that they should, they need to sort of demonstrate some return on the investment, whether it's a a photo op or a meeting or, a you know, an agreement to support a project. So I think it could, I think uh, I'm expecting that things uh, in Cook Islands next week could be quite chaotic on that score. Um, But I think that that will spur Uh, more work on the part of the Secretariat to get a bit more structure and discipline around this. It's not, you know, it's not necessarily in anyone's interests to say no to people that want to be dialogue partners of the forum. 
there's I think there's benefit to having more partners, but with the growth in the number of partners comes the need for a bit more structure and discipline about how they operate and how they interact with leaders at meetings like next week. How significant is the appointment of a Secretary-General and what concerns are there around the appointment of Baron Wanga to that role? Well, the Secretary-General's role is obviously a really important one. He is the most senior bureaucrat um, and, you know, is basically his job is to provide all necessary support to the leaders in order for them to have a successful meeting and achieve what they want to do. The expectation is that Henry Puna will stand down from that position um, in the first half of next year. And as things currently stand, he will be succeeded by Baron Wanga from Nauru. He's a former president of Nauru. Um, so th there have been, when that was announced, there were some expressions of concern about that choice, um, given issues that happened in Nauru when he was president there, particularly relation to human rights, uh, undermining of the rule of law, suppression of the media and things like that. Um, those concerns don't seem to have gone anywhere. My sense from within the Secretariat and from other people I've spoken to is that there's no appetite to reopen that can of worms and that the agreement was that Micronesia could put forward a candidate this is the one they've put forward and kind of everyone just has to work with that. The Micronesian leaders, though, are expected to meet, as with the other groupings of leaders. Could they change their tact? Could they change their vote? Or is it set in stone? I mean, I guess anything's possible. Um, and certainly we heard from at least one of the Micronesian leaders when these concerns were put to him, he seemed to think that this was the first he'd heard of it. Um, so it is open to them to change their mind. They could do that. I, I don't think it's very likely, um, but, you know, anything's possible. Thank you so much for your time. Was there anything else that you wanted to add? You know, this is where the China-US thing really plays out because mm -hmm. they're both dialogue partners. They sit at the same table and the US just doesn't like it. The US wants to be at a better table that doesn't have China on it. But uh, whilst they are dialogue partners, that's where they sit. They sit in that same circle, that, that outer circle. Last month, the Papua New Guinea government announced it was giving more money to churches to have them do more in the areas of health and education and other key sectors. The money is to be 10% of earnings from state businesses, Komol Petroleum Holdings Limited, which has a significant shareholding in the ExxonMobil LNG project, and Komol Minerals Holdings Limited, which has shares in Okteri and Pogera gold mines. But the PNG Institute of National Affairs Executive Director, Paul Barker, told Don Wiseman the churches want to focus on their main business of saving souls and not take on more of the government's responsibilities. It's certainly uh, important to recognise that the big role that the churches do play, and as you say, health, education, but including in rural air services, for example, with Mission Aviation Fellowship and others. But on the other hand, the churches themselves don't want to take on these extra roles. They say, look, we have our church functions, they're our primary functions, but we also very much recognise our commitment to providing educational and health and other opportunities. But please don't ask us to 
take over your government functions. So the responsible church leaders sort of are recognizing that there are functions for the government and there are sound areas for partnership, but they don't want to take over the entire government functions. I suppose there are some issues that arise where many players in government are very affiliated with certain churches, and to some extent there are real hazards where government is trying to use churches to influence voices and engage in the political spectrum. I mean, we've long had some church leaders, pastors, priests, who've actually become government ministers, and sometimes that's been reasonable. But at the same time, there's a hazard when you're trying then to use the church voices by basically buying off the church, if you like. Your organization, the Institute of National Affairs, it's pretty obvious in your name, but you look at the the key issues in the country. Is the government here abrogating its responsibility? Well, yes. The government has 1,400 or so government institutions. Most of them are not functioning or not functioning effectively, and they need to be addressed. The problems of those institutions need to be addressed. Government institutions need to be rationalized and made effective because they do consume a very considerable amount of of public funds. And many of them are in desperate need of funding, but they could certainly be improved in their performance delivery if they were were managed more effectively, if you didn't have all the cronyism, political appointees to to boards, to to management and so on. And diverting further funds away from those government services is problematic. At the same time, when in fact, of course, the churches that are delivering those health, education, sometimes transport functions are also inadequately funded to perform those specifically targeted roles. Now, taking broad hunks of money and just putting it into the churches is not going to address those sorts of issues. It's a funny old setup with the money because it's 10%, I guess, of the net earnings of the Kummel companies, and that could be a significant amount of money. But year on year, it's going to be different. It's going to be very difficult for these church organisations to plan long term. Very much so. It comes back to the issues of those state-owned corporations, the uh, Kummels. As in the past, the money should be going into the government to be allocated through normal government processes. But they're sort of increasingly operating as parallel budget processes. So, as, as I say, a, lo- a lot of the government system has inadequate funds for key priorities, and yet you've got the Kummels dishing out money for sometimes worthy causes, but not being planned in a proper process of prioritization. Some of the funds that sh- is, are going into the Kummels should have been going into the Sovereign Wealth Fund to iron out disparities between the good years and the bad years, and also to plan for the future as well, as well as addressing equalization problems, addressing what they call the Dutch disease or the resource curse, where you're you're distorting the economy when suddenly you have big flows of funds coming in from outside and then other times you're not. So there are a lot of issues there that the approvals for the Sovereign Wealth Fund have been made and yet they've never actually been activated. And you have these kummels that sometimes are sitting on large sums of money at the same time that priority road maintenance, wharf maintenance, 
School funding, school meals, health services are crying out for funds. And as I say, that's both church health services, education services and and the government ones because they're sort of managed together. Given the antipathy that you refer to within the churches over this issue, is the whole thing a fait accompli? Is the government going to go ahead regardless or are there going to be protests about it? Well, I mean, one has to sort of wonder whether there was a factor in the timing of this. You know, you've got votes of no confidence coming up in potentially uh, in the new year, or at least they're allowed to come up. And so at this stage, we've been seeing six new ministries being created. You're seeing a number of measures, major funding commitments, engagements overseas and so on. Some of it looks like a lot of drive and energy, and some of it looks as if it could be an effort to stay off attempts by opposition parties or members to have a go at ousting the government and stalling themselves. So you've got a lot of issues happening at the same time. And and frankly, there's a lot of unreality in some of, of what's being announced and some of the major commitments that the government's announcing at this moment of time. Massive increases in this, that and the other. Some of them are, are very worthy, but some of them are, are unrealistic and it would be better for government to try and focus on achieving what it really needs to do and doing it well rather than firing in all directions, trying to drive the economy, direct everyone within the economy and push for 101 different mechanisms from special economic zones to massive levels of public investment in infrastructure when a more targeted and systematic approach would be valuable. The International Seabed Authority, or ISA, is meeting again in Kingston, Jamaica for the third part of its 28th session. It's a continuation of its July meeting where member states agreed deep-sea mining rules should be finalised by July 2025. However, there's also a growing list of countries calling for a deep-sea mining moratorium, with the United Kingdom being the 23rd country wanting a precautionary pause. International Lawyer for Deep Sea Conservation Coalition, Duncan Curry, speaks to Caleb Fotheringham about the meeting's significance. This is an attempt by the Seabed Authority to agree, or to, to further, I should say, agreement on regulations which would allow seabed mining. Back in July, there was a quite a contentious meeting, and that resulted in a timeline where basically this meeting was held, there's going to be a meeting in, in March, and then further on, that there's to be an assessment in July of next year. So basically, very simply, it's a push to develop regulations to allow seabed mining is, is what is happening here. Right. And there have also been countries that have called for moratoriums. I know that the UK, they were the latest country to call for a moratorium. They did it just before this meeting started. How is that affecting the discussions? That's right. Um, it, it certainly was very significant that the United Kingdom came out with this call for a moratorium. That was a surprise. And they both made that announcement through the, the Prime Minister's office of the UK. And then they came out and, and followed up with a statement on the floor here of the council. But frankly, very shortly after they made their announcement, this earthquake struck and the building was evacuated. And, and uh, even though there's an attempt to, to restart the meeting, a lot of delegations basically rebelled at that and said, no, we don't feel safe. And that's so the meeting came to an end. So I can't really say what's going to happen now because the problem is, is that, again, due to the earthquake and due to the dissatisfaction of a number of the delegations with the safety assurances, then some of them, are, I understand, are leaving Jamaica today or early tomorrow. So 
what that means in terms of what's going to go forward, I don't know. You know clearly, they've lost a day, um, which is valuable because every day is earmarked to, to discuss something. So it's thrown a, the earthquake has certainly thrown a spanner in the works, I'd have to say. Okay, putting the earthquake to a side for a second and back to yep. the exploitation regulations, when do you expect countries to agree on exploitation regulations? The current timeline is that the regulations would be negotiated in this session, in a session in March, and then a session in, in July of next year, 2024. And at that stage, there would be a stock-taking. And then the idea is that those regulations would be finally adopted. There was no commitment, but there was sort of a loose intention, if you like, sometime in 2025. What I'd have to say is there was a cross-current going on because now you have 23 countries, including Aotearoa New Zealand and including now the United Kingdom and other significant countries such as Canada, Switzerland and so on, who are now saying, no, we want a moratorium. And that directly cuts across the regulations because, of course, the regulations would allow seabed mining to start, whereas the moratorium is saying, no, we want a time-bound moratorium with conditions and so on. So there is a this two opposite currents that are really, I think, will be resolved um, more likely in March and in June of next year, and we'll have to see what happens. But things are getting incredibly fractious, I think it's fair to say. Yeah, and just on that moratorium, it was my understanding that after the July meeting, there was an agreement that the moratorium idea or precautionary pause idea would be picked up again in next, next year's discussion. Is that right? Yeah, that's right. In July of next year, in what's called the Assembly, which is the body that has all of the member states of the countries that belong to the Law of the Sea Convention, and they will all get together and meet and decide on a general policy for the protection of the marine environment. And certainly the moratorium countries, the countries that support a moratorium or a precautionary pause, will be arguing that the general policy should be for a moratorium on deep sea mining. However, some countries have already indicated they will oppose a discussion of a general policy for the environment in the Assembly. So that battle is still to be fought, fought, if you like. That all seems incredibly bizarre that you're, on one hand, having these regulations trying to be formed, and then on the other, as you said, two different currents. You've got the moratorium being pushed by certain countries. Yeah, it is, Callum. But there was actually, oddly enough, there's there's a precedent for this because back in the late 80s, there was a convention negotiated called the Convention for the Regulation of Antarctic Minerals for Mining in Antarctica. And that was actually finished as as a template for mining in Antarctica. And then after that, a number of countries, including initially Australia and France, and then basically other countries followed suit, said no. We don't want mining in Antarctica. Instead, we want a moratorium. So they agreed a 50-year moratorium. So there's already a – the law is different, but the, the the international political dynamic is the same. And that country said, no, no, sorry, we don't want mining here, and we're going to have a moratorium. So that's really the debate that we're looking at. And uh, and I think as time goes on, the fact that the United Kingdom, which, which itself actually is a very significant sponsor of – mining exploration activities uh, currently owned by a Norwegian company, oddly enough. And the fact that the UK now supports a moratorium, as well as does France and the other countries I mentioned, um, does show that there is real momentum towards 
a moratorium. So, um, yeah, how this all gets resolved, quite frankly, I think if the the majority of public opinion gets their way, then we'll get, get a moratorium. But um, a number of other countries feel differently. That's Pacific Waves for today. To listen back, head over to rnzi.com slash programs. We're also on Apple, Spotify and iHeartRadio podcasts. From myself and the RNZ Pacific team, till fast week four.